Hello, I'm Jeff Gill, and welcome to Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the thought of retirement? If you're a federal employee navigating the complexities of policies, benefits, and financial planning can seem daunting. Here at Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement, we're all about breaking it down, simplifying the complex, and making retirement planning not only accessible, but truly exciting. Join me and a hand-picked panel of experts as we dive into the topics ranging from policy insights to lifestyle changes. Every episode is crafted to provide actionable advice, insights, and stories tailored for federal employees like you. Whether you're a decade away from the farewell party or just a few years shy of your retirement goals, we've got your back. So if you're looking to equip yourself for a brighter, more informed retirement, hit the subscribe button, share with your colleagues, and let's embark on this journey together. Welcome to Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement, the beacon for federal employees navigating the complex waters of retirement planning. We recognize your unique challenges, deciphering intricate policies and optimizing your benefits. Your host is Jeff Gill, a seasoned financial wealth advisor committed to demystifying this journey for you. Our strength, a team of renowned specialists, policy experts, financial strategists, healthcare consultants, and more. Each episode aims to transform confusion into clarity, offering actionable insights and strategies. Federal employees, it's time to turn apprehension into action. The path to a confident retirement starts here. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show today. I'm with my guest today, Michael D.J. Eisenberg, a Washington, D.C.-based solo practitioner. He brings over a decade and a half of experience advocating veterans, military personnel, and their families with a background that blends of law and science. He expertly handles disability benefit appeals and veterans assisting military members in medical boards and criminal cases and helps veterans with military records corrections. Mr. Eisenberg is authorized to represent clients before various federal administrative boards, the Department of Veterans Affairs, military courts, federal courts, and serving clients nationally and internationally. I want to thank you for joining me today, Michael. Jeff, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, great. Well, Michael, I just wanted to start off by asking a few questions on uh, people tend to think about the military and the VA uh, are one and the same when it comes to veterans care. Is that accurate? Not at all. People tend to get that confused. The Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs are two separate distinguished departments. They are two different agencies with basically two different functions. The DOD is there to protect our nation. The VA is there to provide vital assistance to our American veterans. So if you get a military retirement of some sort, because you say put in 20 years or you get some sort of disability retirement, the military is obligated, responsible for taking care of you. But in those situations, and I refer mostly to the disability aspect, is it has to be a condition that was unfitting at the time of discharge. So if you're healthy, but say maybe you had some sort of little infection on your arm, but then 20 years later, you lose that arm because of your infection, you might be able to get VA benefits, but you're not going to be able to retroactively go back and say, 
hey, I lost my arm because of that infection from 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, that infection didn't interfere with your military duties. So you're not going to get a military retirement for it, but you could get VA disability benefits for it. Now, also, it's important to note that the VA does not provide a quote-unquote regular retirement. In order to get a regular retirement, you have to have put in 20 years with the military, or if you're in the Guard, you have to put in a combination of active and inactive status in the Guard at least 20 years, and you get that retirement once you reach the age of 60. Well, very good. Well, how do these uh, retirement systems differ from each other? Well, for the retirement systems, again, you have to, for the military side, the DOD side, you have to put in your 20 years, whether it's full-time active to get your regular, or again, as I mentioned, a combination of full-time active and also being guard time. And once you reach the age of 60 for the latter, for the guard time, uh, then you'll get your retirement. Now, in order to get a military disability retirement or separation, you have to have really four things. You have to have a medical condition. You have to have it somehow. Um, there has to be a stressor or an event that somehow the military is what caused the disability. You need some sort of nexus between the two, sort of at least what we call a nexus letter on the VA side. And four, it has to be unfitting for service. If it's not unfitting, but you have a condition and you can continue to serve, you're not eligible for that military medical retirement component. Now, mind you, in order to be sent to that process, the medical examination board or the physical examination board, one of two things have to happen. Either your CO has to send you or your military medical provider. You can't initiate that yourself. Now, on the other hand, with the VA side, you can apply at any time once you're out of the military, as long as you have a current medical condition, a stressor or event that in the military that you're saying has caused this medical condition, and a nexus, a nexus letter from a doctor saying more likely than not, the condition that the veteran has today was caused by something that occurred in service. The big distinguishing factor between the VA disability benefits and the military medical retirement or separation aspect is the VA will give you any service-connected condition unfitting or not. So it doesn't have to be an unfitting condition to serve. You just have to have that condition. Okay. So so for instance, that, uh, that infection that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. you may not qualify for a military medical separation or retirement of some sort, but once you're out, you could immediately apply to the VA for possible disability benefits if it's covered under the Vassar D. All right. So what is the Vassar D? Um, Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. The Vassar D is the Veterans Affairs Schedule for Ratings Disabilities. And under that, they have a long list of disabilities, medical conditions, that are considered disabilities that are covered by the VA. And if you find, say, for instance, you're, you're missing your arm, that would likely be under the Vassar D. And based on the severity of the condition, of course, if you're missing an arm, you know, that's going to be pretty obvious that it's going to be the one disability rating. 
And as I mentioned a moment ago, other conditions based, again, on the severity, for instance, radiculopathy, shooting pain into the lower back, depending on, say, the frequency, um, times that you are, say, incapacitated because of the radiculopathy, that will change the disability rating, you know, up and down accordingly. Now, one of the things that I'm sure your audience is wondering about is this whole fuzzy math stuff. How right. do the disability ratings add up? And you're thinking to yourself, and again, please pardon if I'm using a, a slightly extreme example. Let's say, and these numbers aren't accurate, let's say you're missing your left arm. Hmm. And the Vassar D says, yeah, you get 50%. And then let's say you are missing your right arm. And the Vassar C, so we get another 50%. People think naturally, oh, I get 100%. That's fantastic. But that's not the case. Okay. What happens is picture your body as a pie. Think of that big circle. Hmm. And if you get 50% for the first condition, well, that's easy. Just cut the pie in half, shed off one. I get 50%. So for the other 50%, you're thinking, well, just shade off the other half. And now that's 100%. But that's not what happens. Of the 50% remaining, take 50% of that for the second condition. That leaves you with 75%. And forgive me, I, I always tend to just off the top of my head forget the rounding. It either goes down based on the number or goes up. I forget where the 75 mark goes. So if it was like 72%, it would go down to 77%. It would go to 80%. So, well, that's that's kind of a complicated, but yes. I wouldn't understand losing uh, both arms. It seems like you would be 100% disabled, but... Uh, right, right. Uh, and there are additional payment schemes that you can do, uh, mm -hmm. particularly for the VA special monthly compensation, which adds on to that. So if you have certain uh, disabilities, for instance, loss of limb, loss of use of limb, or blindness, that may entitle you to special monthly compensation. Okay. May I ask, uh, Michael, what is a presumptive condition? A presumptive condition is, and, you know, Jeff, we were talking off recording a moment ago. You were talking about your father, hmm. who was a Vietnam vet, and, and, and he had a variety of conditions, particularly a cancer, that you never knew was service-connected. Yeah. And then until you, like some doctor said, hey, this this is something you need to look into. And he had the condition, a presumptiveness under the VA regulations is if you served in a particular area at a particular time, certain medical conditions are considered presumptive. Okay. So for instance, if your father served, I want to say sometime between 1963 and 1972 during Vietnam, and set foot in Vietnam or in its nautical waters within particular areas, and he has this condition, it's automatically granted. He doesn't have to point to a specific event. Oh, I was in Vietnam and I saw these canisters and I was sprayed, uh, you know, with the Agent Orange. They're going to go, okay, you've got this medical condition. You set foot there. Your records show this. We don't need anything else because you have the condition that's granted. And we're seeing a lot of this, of course, from Vietnam. We're getting this from the Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi wars and time in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And there was recently some new, a new list of additional presumptive conditions that was released and approved by Congress within uh, about two years ago. 
the one thing I want to highlight on that, though, is so let's say there's this new condition uh, for medical condition X that is now presumptive during my time, during a veteran's time in Vietnam. The problem you have to be wary of is if you're going to, say, apply for this, but you've had an appeal going on for, say, 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. You will lose that effective date if you say, oh, I'm applying now for this condition per the presumptive regulations that just went into effect in 2022. Okay. That'll be your new start date if you go that route. But that means you lose out on the past years of back benefits that you've been fighting for. Okay. So it, it is, um, I guess that that's a loophole in the government's favor then, right? I know. Um... Yes, yes. But to be blunt, the one thing that you have to do, you have to make an application. Okay. So you can't say, and this was a recent case, that, hey, you know, I discharged with this condition and, you know, I applied for the, the condition 10 years later. I was granted, but I think the earlier effective date should be the time of my discharge because the government knew. Well, maybe the government did know, maybe it didn't know, but the problem was he didn't put in a, he or she didn't put in an application for benefits. Okay. So whether you get a form and you mail it or you, you fax it in or you go online or you go to a regional office and apply, get your application in. And to be very blunt, make sure you have proof that you submitted that application. So- if you go online and do it, make sure you keep some sort of receipt that the application was submitted. If you do it by fax, get keep a fax receipt. If you do it by mail, this is a big one, you need a certified return receipt and attach mm -hmm. a copy of that for your records. Because unfortunately, I say this with no quote unquote authority, the VA loses things. And there have been situations where the VA has, quote unquote, destroyed things. And at the same time, I would make a request to the National Personnel Records Center for a copy of your military records, because that'll help you with your case. Okay. Especially if you're looking for to pinpoint something about your time and service that you believe is what entitles you to your benefits. But don't let the delay of getting those records stop you from filing for your VA benefits as soon as possible. Right. I Just based on what you stated, I can see the value in hiring someone like yourself because a one mistake could cost you thousands of dollars. And here's the problem for the veterans is for the application, I don't know, in my opinion, of an attorney who would take that case for the application. Hmm. And I say that because the way the laws are written, attorneys and representatives like myself can only, quote unquote, earn a fee based on back benefits. Hmm. So if you're putting an application for benefits and you're awarded the benefits, well, there's no back benefits to be had. Okay. On the other hand, let's say you hire me and we put in an application and you're denied. And I say that not because the application was done wrong. I say that because maybe the VA made a mistake or maybe there's some records we didn't realize we needed to have. And then you, you know, I continue on for the appeal. And on based on the appeal, we earn some back benefits. 
I would hate to be accused of quote unquote sabotaging the application just so I could earn money on the back end. So if you will, my understanding is the way I interpret the laws is that you can't pay really an attorney or a representative to assist with the application. Now, there are there have been some quote unquote loopholes. So it's like the non-government agencies that, you know, we don't charge you for putting in the application, but hey, join our club. Right, right. And there are also some uh, private companies that are doing this that I know my understanding that the VA is aware of and not necessarily happy with, but what they're doing, these companies, and, and this is something that I don't think should be done. These companies are saying, you know, pay us some money or pay us some of your monthly VA disability benefits for so many years or for the rest of your life. Hmm. The VA process, the VA benefits are there for our disabled veterans who put their lives on hold in danger for us. And, you know, quite frankly, they shouldn't need to have to hire people like myself. And I'm like, you know, I get calls all the time. Like, hey, can you help me put it in? I'm like, I, you know, I'm sorry, I can't. Put in your application, fill the form out as best you can, make sure you have proof of the submission. And if you get denied, please feel free to call me back. Okay. You know, I'm not pushing off the potential client. I'm uh, I'm just trying to tee him or her up. Heavens forbid they need me. You know, as you know, you're an attorney. Your listeners are attorneys, or some of your listeners are attorneys. And, you know, people call us when they have a problem. Right. And I want to be there for when, heavens forbid, they do have a problem. But right now, they don't have a problem in the sense that they haven't been denied anything. And if the VA does what's supposed to do, and that they're entitled to benefits, then ideally, they'll get them. Okay, perfect. We'll move on. And just um, what is the SMC? What does that stand for? Special monthly compensation. Okay. Now, Jeff, we talked about this a moment ago. If you'd like, we mm -hmm. can rehash it. That's not a problem. Okay. No, that's that's fine. Uh, I just... Uh, wanted to make sure I understood it. And what does what does that mean to be housebound as well? Well, basically that for whatever medical condition you have that service connected, you can't leave the house. You're just physically unable to, say physically mm -hmm. unable to, or perhaps even mentally unable to go out and go grocery shopping, take care of errands, um, that you need people to basically kind of take care of you and take care of your, your daily or weekly chores. And I say okay. chores that involve, you know, leaving the house, going to the post office, going grocery shopping, just, you know, for whatever mental or physical condition, you can't just, you can't leave the house. You're just simply, what's the word, you know, almost like a hermit. Right. Right. And the important thing to know is you can't receive both SMC where we talk about where, you know, there are certain finite conditions, you know, blindness, loss of limbs, loss of use of limbs, you know, that's SMC. But if it's something else that makes you housebound, let me rephrase this. If you're receiving SMC, you can't receive housebound benefits. So if you've lost a limb, you've lost, if you're blind and you can't leave the house, you're either going to receive SMC benefits or you're going to receive housebound benefits. You can't receive both. Okay. Hopefully I said that clearly. Yeah, I understand. But okay. um, moving on, um, can a retired 
uh, military personnel receive military retirement and VA benefits at the same time? It depends. So there are two programs. There is the Combat Related Special Compensation Program and the Concurrent Retirement Disability Pay Program. Each has its own requirements in order to, and benefits in order to um, receive these benefits. And if I can have just one second, because I want to make sure I have this correctly, because there's a lot of quote unquote finite details in this. Okay, in order to receive the CRDP, you must be eligible for retired pay in order to qualify. You have to have at least 20 years qualified service, whether it's full-time hmm. or part reservist uh, and part active duty, and then reach the age of 60. Your disability rating has to be 50% or greater. Or, and forgive me, there, there are a lot of finite details in this, but this allows you to get back that retired pay that may be offset by your VA disability pay. Now, again, that's the retired pay that's been offset by your VA disability pay. Now, it's important to know that should be automatic, but you need to check with your agency, you know, DFAS or the Coast Guard, and make sure that that's actually being implemented. And be forewarned, that is taxable. Okay. Because you're receiving your regular retirement back. So, and that's, of course, a retirement fund. That's not a disability fund. Okay, exactly. And for the CRSC, you have to be receiving some sort of military retired pay, be rated at least 10% disabled by the VA, and have waived your VA pay from your retired pay. But you have to actually fill in an application. Okay. That's not taxable. Very complicated. But Sorry, that's not taxable. Uh, you could put in uh, possibly for retroactive benefits back to 2003, and you must go again through your branch of service in order to get those benefits. You have to put that application in. Okay. And how would that, uh, how do our veterans uh, apply for their disability benefits? Like you said earlier, you can mail them in, you can go online, or but is there a certain process? And, and there are certain forms that you need to fill in. Uh, and to be honest, uh, I mean, the forms, you know, they, they do constantly change. I don't get involved with that aspect. So I'm not familiar with those specific forms, but they are all online. Uh, if you go to va.gov, uh, there's an online process. The forms are there. You can print them off. And, you know, this is so kind of shows that I, I kind of keep myself away from that aspect of the process because I, I don't want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think the representatives really want to be involved with that because if if they they screw that up for the, the veteran, Again, I don't want to be held, you know, potentially liable or responsible. It's like, well, he only did that so that I he could get paid at the back end, um, which is sort of why I put up this, if you will, Chinese wall, just to kind of keep that that separated. But I think one thing that you may be interested in, and I think your listeners might be interested in, is that, well, what happens if I'm denied? What do I do? Well, the first thing is you need to make note of the date of the denial letter. Because from that day, you have one year to file an appeal. And this is under the new system. And the new system has been changed a couple times over the past uh, three or four years. We have a legacy system that was the way we used to do things. Now it is the new system that has three options that you can do. Instead of just filing an appeal, you can do either file a supplemental claim, which is you have new evidence that they didn't consider that they couldn't have considered, 
So if it's in the record already, then you can't really file a supplemental claim because it's already there. You could ask for a higher level review. That is someone at the VA regional office who's going to take another look and say, okay, I could see where a legal er where a legal error occurred. Okay. The third option is to appeal to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. And I will say, and I will share that 99% of my cases, I prefer to go to the BVA level because the administrative law judges there are attorneys. The higher level review people, I don't believe are. So the BVA lane may be a little bit longer, but ideally you get a better decision. So you may be able to get a faster decision in the higher level review lane, but if they don't do it right and you have to appeal, you don't appeal back to the higher level review, you appeal to the BVA and you're put at the end of the line for all that time that you could have been in line, you wasted at the higher level review. Right, very good. I wanted to talk to you about the needs-based retirement benefits for veterans and uh, and their spouses. I mean, that's yes. a big thing as well. So if you've served during particular wartime activities, you may be entitled to a needs-based, but again, it's a needs-based. You have to have a very low threshold of income around basically maybe you're only receiving Social Security and nothing else, and you're living in you know, living in a poverty level uh, income basis. So it's, again, that's not like someone who owns a house and has other sources of income and is okay and is, you know, able to meet their bills monthly, have a little excess cash, able to buy their groceries, their medications are taken care of. This is for people who just simply have nothing or next to nothing because okay. we don't want our veterans to be homeless or their spouses. Right, right. Well, uh, Michael, what what is the the DC? The DC is the Diagnostic Codes. That's all under the Vassar D, and the various codes are the individual medical conditions that are covered by the VA that will pay for veteran uh, veterans disability ratings. Okay. And I, I think one other thing, uh, and forgive me if I'm jumping slightly. We want to talk about the VA dependency and indemnity compensation, also known as DIC. If a veteran dies because of a service-connected condition, the spouse or surviving uh, member, which could be a child perhaps under the age of 18, hmm. or a parent dependent upon uh, the veteran, or even a needs-based child dependent on the veteran, they can receive what's called DIC benefits. So again, you have to show that the veteran died because of a service-connected condition. For instance, in, respectfully, I think you mentioned your father had passed because of cancer that he obtained that was service-connected uh, service and presumptive because of his time in Vietnam. And your mom was able to receive DIC benefits because, right. again, he passed because of that condition. Right, right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, have you noticed any trends uh, or changes in the VA retirement benefits uh, that are being granted or denied over the years? When I started looking into doing uh, a VA benefits portion of my practice, I went to the National Organization of Veterans Advocates. I've been a member of since I joined, since I went to that first conference. And I remember 
I remember a couple of things. Uh, in the auditorium or the conference room, you know, there was hundreds of attorneys looking to get into VA practice because the law had recently changed. Uh, the Veterans Choice Act law that was passed by uh, George W. Bush back in 2006, 2007, okay. allowed veterans to hire attorneys to represent them on a contingency fee. Now, mind you, veterans could hire attorneys, but it was antiquated regulations that allowed the attorney to earn like 10 or $15. This is like Civil War era stuff. And of course, attorneys were not lining up to help veterans during the administrative process because all they could earn is 10 or 20 bucks. But there were a whole bunch of new attorneys that were looking into this. And I remember the speaker was talking about how the VA appeals process can last anywhere between, I want to say, four and 10 years. And you can't, quote unquote, earn a fee because it's until the end. It's all contingency. So I remember at that point, well over half the audience had left after the first break because they realized they're not going to be able to earn quick cash. Hmm. And I tell this story because anecdotally, a process that's gone from four to 10 years, in my opinion, has increased in the length and delay of the process because we have a lot of veterans who's come back from the Middle East in the last 20 years with a lot of service-connected conditions that the VA was not prepared for. And there's an issue of simply manpower, uh, a lack of training, and mistakes. And while certain aspects of the VA process has improved, in fixing those aspects, other parts fall behind. So there's going to be a delay at one portion or another. Now, that's not to say that the VA employees are not dedicated, that they don't care. They do. Hmm. But, you know, reality is only so much can be processed based on the way the mechanics are set up by Congress. There's a process. I'm sure there's a checklist that has to go through. And every if they don't have one piece of information, it probably mm -hmm. kicks that application to the side. So thank God or, for the or, appeals commission, right? Yes. Or simply put, you know, if one piece of paper isn't put where it needs to be. It's like, oh, well, you know, he, he doesn't have a parachutist badge. Mm. And therefore, you know, the repetitive jumping out of planes and landing on the ground, you know, hundreds of times just for practice. And then, of course, the actual missions that they carry out, you know, because there's that badge missing. Well, he can't be entitled to radiculopathy. He's got no injury to his legs in the back. There's no stress or event. And that could you know, cause the whole claim to be delayed. And then you have to go through an appeals process. It's not like you can just call these people up and say, hey, oh, here it is. Hmm. And especially when you have hundreds of thousands of veterans all vying for that attention. Right, right. Not that they're not entitled to it, but, you know, we are, we are in a democracy where we have a particular regulatory process and, and we have to follow it. Right. We currently have a lot of veterans that are, just now that may be coming up to retirement mm -hmm. uh, status right now. What advice could you give them to uh, uh, make sure that they maximize their VA benefits uh, for, for retirement? Well, we can look at it from a variety of aspects. So first of all, if you're planning on retiring from the military, 
or if you're going through the med board process, ideally you'll get help from the military about reaching out to the VA and saying, hey, I have these conditions that I think maybe are, are service connected and that I would be entitled to them upon my discharge. So make sure you're reaching out because you are your best advocate. And whether it's an intent to file or preferably just put in an application, put in an application even before you're quote unquote officially out so that ideally, although you can't get benefits while you're in the military, unless you're on not on active duty in the guard, you'll have that ready so that day one, you're receiving benefits. If you're a veteran today, whether you're working in the civilian or federal employment aspect, look and see if you have conditions that you think may be service-connected, and if you think there are, contact the VA and put in an application sooner rather than later, even if the application is not complete. When I say not complete, it's like, you know, I had this condition while I was in the military, and I can tell that the lower back pain I had then is now like almost uh, debilitating to the degree that I can't get out of bed, I can't run, I can't lift, you know, put in that application, you know, and, and Jeff, forgive me for, uh, for pulling on, on the story that you and I were talking about, you know, your dad had these, these blood conditions and these other uh, skin conditions that he didn't realize were related to his time in service, but they were. So, you know, be your own advocate, look at your body, look at your medical conditions. You know, are you suffering from some sort of great anxiety um, because of something that you realize that occurred while I was in service or was exacerbated while I was in service? And right. if, if you have a reasonable belief, put in that application. If you get denied, then you contact like an advocate like myself and say, Mr. Eisenberg, uh, I put in this application. This is why I was denied. And I will walk you through some questions to say, okay, well, why do you think it was service connected? What kind of events occurred? What does your doctor say? And if it's something that I feel I can help pull together into a, an appeal, you know, I would offer my services. Perfect. Well, lastly, when a, uh, with the current system, do you mm -hmm. believe that there's ways for the VA to improve how they handle the distribution of retirement benefits to better serve our veterans? It's not the VA. I think it's Congress. And we, the American people, wrote a check to our veterans saying that we will take care of you. If you are, if you put yourself in harm's way and heaven forbid you are harmed, we will take care of you. And it's up to Congress to pass the appropriate legislation, pass the appropriate funding to make sure that this process works. And when I say works, that they get ideally the correct decisions, that they are paid what they're entitled to so that they can take care of themselves. You know, there's a story I, I've mentioned uh, a couple of times. I, haven't, I don't think you and I've talked about it before. I had a... Vietnam era veteran who served in country, who hired me to help him with his appeal at the VA. He had been fighting for decades, trying to get his mental health conditions service connected. And he hired me and we had, we were offered a DRO hearing, a decision review officer hearing. And at the time I, I did not have an opinion one way or the other about whether or not 
to go, whether or not they're worthwhile to go, whether or not worthwhile. And we went to a hearing and the officer, the DRO officer, made a quote unquote bench decision. And based on the testimony, granted uh, the veteran right there and then his PTSD disability benefits. And I was, I mean, you know, I had gotten the veteran ready for his hearing, his testimony. And, you know, he shared some very, you know, not pleasant things. And I, I was just amazed that that happened because I had never heard of that happening. And I don't think I've heard of it happening since. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing this story up, uh, because th this is an outlier. This is an outlier story in the sense that the drove did a bench decision and just nailed it. Got it absolutely right in my opinion. So several months later, I get a call from his friend saying that my client had killed himself. Hmm. Mind you, now that he's receiving benefits, he didn't have to worry about paying rent. He didn't have to worry about, you know, paying for food. Um, he was going to be taken care of. And it's my understanding that they didn't treat him for his PTSD for 20, 30 years. And it's my belief that he killed himself because his fight for all that time had been to get his benefits. Hmm. He finally got his benefits. He no longer had any reason, you know, to live. His mission was done. And had he been t properly taken care of, that would have happened. Now, the VA has made some exceptions regarding providing mental health treatment for our veterans, regardless of certain criteria, especially if you have an other than honorable discharge, they will, you know, treat our veterans now. But it's that type of bureaucracy, that type of red tape that is killing our veterans, whether it's not getting the mental health treatment or in some cases not getting the physical treatment they need. Right. I remember uh, just one story of mine, uh, one of my teachers in school, um, he had served in uh, World War II and, uh, he was a shell shock and shell shock. And I remember just the least little noise in the classroom. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it wasn't funny. I mean, the, a kid, of course, the kids thought it was funny, but I can remember right. it wasn't it wasn't funny. But uh, I've always thought about him as he never got the treatment that he probably needed. And, uh, well, I know he was embarrassed each time it happened. You know, I mean, I, I, I've seen it happen with him. So. Well, thank him for his service and thank your father and your family for your dad's yeah. service and for your listeners. I thank you all for your service. You know, as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, I, this is sort of the job I wish I didn't have. Not that I don't enjoy helping veterans. I do, but you shouldn't need me. Mm. No, you should. And, but I'm, I'm here to help. Excellent. Well, Michael, given your experience uh, representing service members with the PEBs across all branches, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have you identified yes. any common misconceptions or pitfalls that service members might have about the medical separation uh, retirement process? Yes, uh, that, in my humble opinion, when you join the military, you know, you are told that you will do everything to be there for your fellow soldiers that you will take care of them as they will take care of you. But too many times I've seen where the member is no longer fit for service and to be blunt, filling a billet that from their perspective, I believe, their perspective being, 
the militaries is they're filling a billet that a able-bodied person can do, and it's a drain on their resources. Also, a drain on the resources if they have to pay them, you know, any military disability benefits for, you know, for release from active duty. So, number one, you have to be your best advocate and realize that the military is no longer your friend. That when the military says to you, well, let the VA take care of you. Just go ahead and get discharged. Let the VA take care of you. Well, the thing is, the military also has a responsibility to take care of you. We sort of talked about this today. Lastly, consider this. If you were in the military and you were up or potentially up for a med board, make sure that you keep the straight and narrow. Don't give them a reason to administratively discharge you, say for a series, uh, a pattern of misconduct that you're, quite frankly, probably, possibly behaving because of the service-connected condition you have. You know, you are term was shell-shocked today is that you're suffering from a mental health crisis that's causing you to act out. Because if you can give them a reason to give you an admin discharge in Article 15, what people don't recognize is that when you're signing that paperwork, you are quote-unquote exposed to an other-than-honorable discharge. And with an other-than-honorable discharge, you get no benefits from the military. You have a criminal record that you have to go forward with into the civilian world. And the VA doesn't have to take care of you because of the OTH, but with the exceptions of some mental health issues. So I get called for what's called records corrections issues. You know, hey, this guy was up for, you know, a, a med board. He was acting out because of his military service connection conditions. And you discharge him for bad misconduct. And quite frankly, he or she needed care by you. And was, you know, needed to complete the med board process. Those aren't always easy arguments to be had, but they need to be made. So the best thing you could do is be on the straight and narrow. Remember that the military has a responsibility to you too. And be your best advocate. And I I know your next question is going to be, you know, when do you need to contact or hire, you know, an attorney uh, to help you with this process, the med board process? The moment you realize things are going south. The JAG that is signed to you, they have way too many cases, way too many cases. And you know, you're know you entitled to an attorney. It doesn't have to be a good attorney, but you're entitled to an attorney. Right. And I'm not saying that the JAG people are bad attorneys, but they are overworked. And would that be a conflict of interest as well, being they are a JAG attorney? Well, it used to be. Mm-hmm. And... And I'll tell you a story in a second. So it used to be because they used to be under the same chain of command. The JAG attorneys used to be under the same chain of command as the med board officers or the PEB board officers, uh, physical examination board officers. That, I believe, is no longer the case. Like you said, they're still they're still being paid by Uncle Sam. They're still within that particular you know, branch. It could still be a conflict of interest. I remember I had a case years ago where it was still under the same chain of command and someone someone told my client i think her jag attorney told my client to contact civilian counsel because in this case uh, she was an officer she was a nurse she had a botched hysterectomy performed by the military and it was causing her there was some nerve damage throughout her body 
So it's service-connected because it was done by the military personnel. She was, I think, 16, 17 years in at the time. Hmm. And for roughly a year and a half, they had been accommodating her at work. She wasn't doing, you know, she wasn't necessarily seeing patients and giving shots, but there was other admin work she could do. So suddenly after 18 years in, they decide that she's going to be medically discharged. And they start the process and they give her 10%. Now, mind you, 10% is under the threshold of the difference between a military medical separation versus a military medical retirement. If you get less than 30%, you get basically a one-time check based on your times in, your disability rating, and a couple other factors. And that's it. And then a kick in the butt goodbye. Now you get over 30% or 30%, you get a monthly check for the rest of your life based on a variety of calculations, including, you know, your average of base pay in the last three years, uh, I believe your time's in, uh, your disability rating, uh, et cetera. And also you get access to TRICARE, which some say is better than the VA care. And also you can keep, have the TRICARE, which, you know, is like four or $500 a year. Right. Versus thousands of dollars for you and possibly your family. Right. So that's a, that's a big, that's a strain on Uncle Sam. So obviously the DOD has an interest of getting you out at zero, if not at 10% or under right. 30% at least. And her PEBLO, her physical examination board liaison, who's assigned to all uh, members going through the board, the board's, uh, told her 10% was fantastic. Hmm. Take it and run. She for called 18 years of service. Yeah, for 18 years of service. 18. She contacted me and I looked at her case and there was a bunch of administrative missteps. And quite frankly, she should have been, if she was going to be medically discharged, she should be at 100%. But a couple things. One, they've been accommodating at work. So she could possibly ask for a waiver. And stay in for her the rest of her 20. Two, at that time, and the laws have changed, but at that time, she had met her 18-year requirement that if you're going through a med board, you're supposed to be allowed to finish your 20. Now, the I believe the threshold is now 19 years. Okay. Not, no longer 18. So the hearing was not in the D.C. metro area. So I'm not going to say where, just so I don't like give other aspects away. Right, right. And, you know, I flew into town, you know, I met with a client, we went to our hearing, and, and mind you, this is, you know, this is more the exception, not the rule. And, you know, we're there at, you know, 800 hours, and I meet with the, you know, I meet with everybody, and then I hand whoever a 20-page brief and a CD with 500 pages of supporting documents. I say, this is our brief. Here's our CD. I apologize for not being able to print it off, but I you know, couldn't take 500 pages of paper on a plane of you know PII and also you know, easily, and I didn't have time to get the Kinkos. So with my apologies. So that's like at 800, or sorry, that's at eight, 800, or yeah, 800 hours. Um, at 900, uh, I'm called into, I'm called into the board, you know, where the board's meeting in the conference room. And I'm asked by the president of the board, you know, what is this? I go, well, sir, this is our brief and support. This is all the errors that you've made. This, you know, there needs to be more development on this. This person should be 
at 100%. Here's our supporting documents. Fine. Hour later, I'm called back in. They're like, well, what is it that your client wants? And as a lawyer, you know, we always argue all the potential alternatives. So first of all, I'm like, well, this was done wrong. She should be out at 100%. However, she's also been accommodated at work now for whatever. And she should be allowed to just, you know, finish out her 20. Because also, she's past the 18-year mark. And also, if you add in her leave or cumulative leave, she's going to be terminally retired um, out within like four months, four months from the date of the hearing. And they send me out. And then an hour later, they call me back in. And I say, okay, you get what you want. You get your your 100%. Or sorry, not sorry, that. You get your 20-year retirement. 20 years. So they let her stay. Let her finish out. Right. Four they let her stay, they let her finish. And, you know, again, I should not have had to get involved, if that makes any sense. And so the thing is, if I recall correctly, even if you get a disability rating at 100%, you're paid at max at 75%. So you still want that regular retirement if you can get it. Right. Well, you served her well. And uh, if she hadn't have found someone like yourself, she would have been stuck with 10%. Yeah, I the joke that we all shared, uh, uh, myself, my client, and, and uh, her spouse, was her Pablo at some point told her, Michael Eisenberg, I've never heard of Michael Eisenberg. And then later, we went to lunch together. And I said to them, you know, I said, you know, he said that and I said, yeah, you know, I think he served me now. And we yeah. just kind of, kind of, I mean, you know, just a little, sorry, a little humor out of all that. Um, right, right. So, yeah, we all got a good laugh. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been very interesting speaking with Michael DJ Eisenberg today. And uh, we all learned a lot. So thank you for your input. And uh, I appreciate your time, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. You've been listening to Navigating Freedom and Federal Retirement. And we'll see you next week on another episode. This concludes another episode of Navigating Freedom and Federal Retirement podcast. As federal employees, your retirement journey is unique, and we're here to guide you every step of the way. With host Jeff Gill and our lineup of experts, we aim to bring clarity to your path ahead. If you found value in today's conversation, please share it with a fellow federal employee. Remember to subscribe for continued insights. Until next time, here's to your informed and bright retirement future.